dear listeners, and welcome to Slavic Connection. This is your host, Sergio Glajar, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Taylor Ham, and we have a very special episode for you today. This semester, our cohort of graduate students here at UT Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies has been working together with Dr. Mary Newberger on a project analyzing North Macedonia's quest for EU accession, which was blocked for over 25 years by Greece and since 2019 has similarly been held up by a Bulgarian ultimatum. Both Greece and Bulgaria are EU members. They have veto power over Macedonian accession which has put the country that is now called North Macedonia into an untenable position with relation to European integration. I don't think that at the moment, both sides are mature enough to resolve this problem. Nowadays, you can see all these diplomatic uh, meetings, but for me, it's just a theater at the moment. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the Greek case, but then also to focus on the Bulgarian case, which is yet to be resolved. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So Taylor, how should we go about trying to understand the current Macedonian conundrum? We did our own research, but we also got to talk to a lot of scholars and policy analysts to kind of help us wrap our heads around what's going on. So we spoke with Dr. Kirill Avramov, who is an assistant professor here in the Department of Slavic and Eurasian Studies at UT Austin, and is also the director of the Global Disinformation Lab. We also spoke with Stefan Dechev, Associate Professor of History at, at the Southwest University of Blagojevgrad, Bulgaria. And we also spoke with our own Alexei Demyansky, who is a UT alumnus from the CREASE program and LBJ School dual MA program, and currently the Assistant Program Officer at the Southeast Europe Desk at the National Endowment for Democracy. We will share with you some of our insightful clips that we got from these interviews and conversations in the course of this episode. So to provide a little preliminary context for our listeners, where is North Macedonia anyway? Well, it is a small country in Eastern Europe in the Balkan region, north of Greece. It is also situated between Bulgaria, Albania, Serbia, and Kosovo, all minor or major players in the history and politics of Macedonia and the region. Taylor, why has Macedonia had such a difficult time on its path to EU accession? North Macedonia began the process for EU accession in 2005. Before this, it spent 25 years since independence in 1991 in a dispute with Greece over the name Macedonia and various bits of messy history that get caught between the two countries. So after the Prespa Agreement, which we will discuss later, North Macedonia is now confronted with Bulgaria setting another series of ultimatums that must be met before they can join. Many experts agree that Bulgaria is operating under the precedent set by Greece. Basically, if Greece can get what they want from North Macedonia, so can Bulgaria. To clarify the ultimatums a little bit, many of them essentially boil down to these following points. First, the Macedonian language should be referred to as a dialect of Bulgarian in the international context. Macedonian textbooks have to be revised to expunge any mentioning of Bulgarian occupation of the country during World War II. And remember, Bulgaria allied itself with the Axis powers. Furthermore, national heroes like Gotze Delchev would need to be referred to as Bulgarian heroes, not strictly Macedonian ones. 
Any public discourse in Macedonia about a Macedonian minority in Bulgaria should also cease so that North Macedonia cannot officially recognize a Macedonian minority in Bulgaria, but Bulgaria could recognize a Bulgarian minority in Macedonia. So Taylor, tell us a little bit more about why this shared history is so important. Well, it's extremely important because the Bulgarian ultimatum is directly connected to interpretations of the Macedonian past that have serious implications for the present. The dominant narrative in Bulgaria, which, by the way, is shared by the Greeks, is that Macedonians have no history of their own prior to 1945. That is, that the Macedonian nation was an artificial creation of post-war communist Yugoslavia. Because the Macedonian language is so close to Bulgarian, the widespread Bulgarian assumption is that Macedonians, even today, are really Bulgarians who have appropriated the Bulgarian past and called it their own, or, as the case of World War II and beyond, are just misinterpreting major historical events. If Bulgarians today talk about a quote-unquote shared history with Macedonia, the implication is that Bulgaria is sharing its history with Macedonia and that therefore they should be able to dictate the terms of Macedonian interpretations of the past. Dr. Kirill Avramov explained to us the depth of the Bulgarian attachment to Macedonia and its contemporary implications. We've been brought up, socialized to think that, you know, the tricolors, yellow, zeleno, cerveno, white, green, red, stand to represent historically the three particular parts of Bulgaria, Mysia, Trakia, and Macedonia. Um, Mysia trace Macedonia, which represents the unity of Bulgarian nations. This is why, you know, the Balkan Wars were fought. This is why, you know, the big dreams, post San Stefano and so on. Um, this is the vernacular read. Um, however, just mind you that this type of narrative gains votes, especially if you are a politician with nationalist or populist side. Um, to you to ask to give up this part is to give up, you know, you think of the equivalent uh, of, of your own identity. To say that, uh, this is important part, to say that there is such thing as separate Macedonian language instead of a dialect of, of Bulgarian, is to say that we don't have a common history. So in the documents you see that the Bulgarian side insists that histories will diverge. Now think about that, it's a trick of the, the whole thing. After 1944, so the question comes, you know, like what about before 1944? So, of course, not all Bulgarians agree with the ultimatum. Dr. Avramov is himself Bulgarian, and he has a very critical perspective on the use of history as a political tool in the region. In 21st century, in, your, in, in front of our very eyes, we're seeing a process. And this is the process of weaponization of culture, of history, and of language in order to achieve policy goals fortify identity, and advance political interests. We should start with the precedent for what's going on right now between Bulgaria and North Macedonia, which is the PRESPA agreement of 2018, which itself was 27 years in the making. So basically, Greece disputed the name Macedonia since North Macedonia's independence from the former Yugoslavia in 1991 due to Greece's own cultural claims and the history attached to the very word Macedonia. Nima poručujemo da uopšte nismo plašljivi 
So after the breakup of Yugoslavia, North Macedonia became known as Fyrom, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. However, when North Macedonia began the conversation with the European Union towards the session, Greece created a list of grievances against this potential accession of North Macedonia, starting with the name and history that the newly formed country was trying to claim for itself. In order to achieve EU status, Macedonia finally did agree to a series of concessions in terms of its public use of the historical figures, symbols, and names regarding ancient Macedon. The most important compromise was the use of the Republic of North Macedonia as the new official name of the Macedonian polity. But there was also the renaming of important public sites in Macedonia that had carried the name Alexander the Great or Philip II, such as the airport and a major soccer stadium. Quite understandably, these concessions were a hard sell to the Macedonian citizens and political elites. As Alexei Demyansky said, the Prespa agreement required quite a bit of internal political maneuvering in North Macedonia in order to get the agreement signed into law. The actual process of changing the name created a lot of public distrust for this government that people abroad or the international community doesn't really consider. So when the name change sort of the agreement took place, most governments in Macedonia agreed that we would have to take this to a referendum and the public would need to vote on it. And they did, they held a referendum. The referendum question was a little odd. Do you agree with the Prespa agreement in order to join the European Union? It was framed in a very positive light. But the referendum took place. The 92% of the people that voted in it voted for the name change, only 8% voted against. But only 36.9% came out to vote during the referendum. And for the referendum to be legally binding, they needed to achieve 50%. So technically the referendum was invalid in legal terms. A lot of people thought, okay, wow, clearly most people aren't okay with us doing this. Maybe we should pause and reevaluate. Instead, the very next day, the government said, this is great, most people voted for it. We're going forward through parliament and we need a two thirds majority to sort of pass this. That government of the Social Democrats and the Democratic Union for Integration and Ethnic Albanian Party, they didn't have a two-thirds majority in parliament. And in order to get a two-thirds majority in parliament, they peeled off 10 votes, 10 MPs, from the nationalist Vomero Dupomanea Party. And they did that by essentially excusing people who were being charged for crimes of storming the parliament in 2017. Um, if someone's kid was on trial for some corruption, they kind of were having lighter sentences dealt out. They essentially bribed 10 people to then vote for the name change and essentially ram it through parliament. So what is ancient Macedon? Why is it important? Why do Greece and Macedonia both lay claim to it? And what is going on there? In antiquity, ancient Macedonia, also called Macedon, was a kingdom at the edge of the famous ancient Greek city-states like Athens, Sparta, or Thebes. The ancient Macedonians spoke a dialect of Greek, and even though the ancient Greeks themselves didn't really consider the Macedonians to be Greek per se, ancient historians would trace their roots to mythical Greek heroes, which is one of the unwritten requirements for Greekness in the ancient world. They were culturally similar, although distinct in certain aspects. For modern purposes, they comprise part of modern Greek heritage, even if the ancient Greeks had differing opinions about the ancient Macedonians. This is, of course, a prestigious history to have attached to the very name Macedonia. Not only did Alexander 
Alexander the Great conquer everything between Greece and the Indian subcontinent in 13 years, but his father, Philip II, was also a critical figure in ancient history. Greece has long-standing claims to ancient Macedonia, but so do many people in North Macedonia who claim to be direct descendants of ancient Macedonia. Still, as we noted, a critical mass of Macedonians have been willing to set aside such claims par for the promise of EU accession by signing the Prespa Agreement in 2018. Since then, however, issues over quote-unquote shared or contested history with Bulgaria have stood in the way. The Prespa Agreement between Greece and Macedonia became a model for what is currently going on between Bulgaria and Macedonia. Moving on from matters of antiquity, though, we'll turn to Macedonia during the medieval and the Ottoman periods. There are a number of figures that both sides claim as their own, such as Tsar Samuel, who ruled from 977 AD to 1014 as leader of the first self-proclaimed Bulgarian Empire. The territory that Tsar Samuel acquired and ruled over spans both the modern-day territories of Bulgaria and North Macedonia and beyond. And in addition to Tsar Samuel, two noteworthy disputed figures from this period are Cyril and Methodius, uh, two Orthodox Christian missionaries who were later canonized as saints and who were originally from Thessaloniki in modern-day Greece. They developed the alphabet that became the basis for the Cyrillic alphabet, coming from the name Cyril, making these two figures extremely important ones that are claimed by both Bulgaria and Macedonia. This kind of brings us to a discussion of nationalism as a concept. In fact, in these pre-modern periods, there was nothing like a modern sense of national identity. Well, right. My understanding is that the modern-day sense of nation and nationalism is a relatively recent development of human civilization, mainly having arisen in the 19th century in Europe. This helps explain, at least in part, why it is so difficult to settle disputes about the national origin of pre-modern figures like Alexander the Great, Tsar Samuel, or Cyril and Methodius in a period when people generally identified with their religion, clan, social group, village, or region, as opposed to a so-defined national group. At the same time, nationalist forces but also the general population in the Balkans and elsewhere today are generally convinced of their unitary claims to the past. In Bulgaria and Macedonia, such conflicting claims are by no means new, but for the first time, after signing a friendship treaty in 2017, a historical commission was formed to try and hash out such differences. Stefan Dechev gave us some details on the task and the challenges this commission faced. They have uh, more than 10 sessions, 12 or 13 First task is to make something like overview of the historical textbooks, Bulgarian historical textbooks and Macedonian historical textbooks, and to see what is wrong and what is openly offensive from the neighboring nation, and to try to improve these historical textbooks, and also to find what are these common or share events and what are these common uh, historical figures that could be celebrated in the future by both nations together. They started from the antiquity and early medieval period and in these uh, 12 or 13 sessions they reach to the 10th century, which is not a great uh, success, of course, 
as far as historical figures are concerned, in the February 2019, in fact, both sides of the commission reached to the very flexible and vague text about the medieval figures, Cyril and Methodius, Clement Ochritsky, Naum Ochritsky, King Samuel, very broad formula about them. And after this, the work of the commission, every next meeting deteriorates more and more. And uh, they have just scandal after scandal or just uh, pointless sessions without any decisions and without uh, any uh, achievements. Okay, Sergio, let's move on to the Ottoman period. Give us a little bit of a scene setter or context for what's going on here. So the territories of modern day Bulgaria, Greece and Macedonia were conquered and ruled by the Ottoman Empire from roughly the 14th century until the 19th and early 20th centuries. The population of the Ottoman Empire, specifically in the Balkan region, was incredibly diverse, mostly centered around religious diversity. So many Bulgarians, Greeks, and North Macedonians have similar interpretations of this period as a dark age of foreign domination, often called the Ottoman yoke. So Taylor, can you tell us a little bit about what was happening at the end of the Ottoman period? So towards the end of the Ottoman period, with nationalism in Europe firmly on the rise since the mid-19th century, we see people in the Balkan region start to craft these new national identities and nationalist movements resulting in various revolts, diplomatic interventions, and gaining of autonomy and independence from the Ottomans. Bulgaria was granted autonomy in 1878 by the Treaty of San Stefano, which gave them all of modern-day Macedonia. However, just a few short months later, Macedonia was taken away in the 1878 Treaty of Berlin, and Bulgaria has been sent trying to take it back. During this period, a Macedonian movement also emerged and staged the Linden Uprising of 1903. But both Bulgaria and Macedonia claimed the main figures of the movement, such as Gotze Delchev. This period is a major sticking point for Bulgaria and Macedonia. Stefan Dechev talks about why Macedonia can't compromise on this period and the turn of events. In the Bulgarian-Macedonian debate, the 19th century revivalists and Macedonian revolutionaries, or the Ilinden uprisal of 1903, are very important for the Macedonian state mythology. So the concession that the revivalists have also Bulgarian identity or the revolutionaries have Bulgarian identity, according to the Macedonian government, Macedonian site, Macedonian historian, Macedonian governmental circles and Macedonian public will damage seriously the Macedonian identity. The late 19th century is clearly a minefield when it comes to Bulgarian-Macedonian historical disputes. But then we have the 20th century, in which a series of wars transformed the face of this part of the Balkans. In the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 1913, the Ottomans lost their last Balkan territories, including, of course, Macedonia, which was partitioned between neighboring independent Serbia, Greece, and Bulgaria. During World War I, Macedonia was occupied by Bulgaria, which allied itself with the Central Powers, but then Bulgaria was on the losing side of the war and lost Macedonia yet again. The Serbian portion of Macedonia was then incorporated into the first Yugoslav state, which was ruled by the Serbian royal family until World War II. 
Following the invasion of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia by Nazi forces and the kingdom's quick surrender in April of 1941, the country was partitioned by Axis partners and Bulgaria yet again occupied much of Macedonia. While most of these basic facts are not disputed, interpretations and representations of the events of World War II have nevertheless become hotly contested between Bulgaria and Macedonia. Generally speaking, Bulgarian narrative is a narrative about the liberation of Macedonia and the Macedonian-Bulgarian population from interwar Yugoslavia occupation. And Macedonian narrative is the narrative about the Bulgarian fascist occupation during the Second World War. In fact, when the Bulgarian troops enter in April 1941, generally speaking, they were more uh, well uh, received. Many people from local Macedonian population supported Bulgarian power. First, because still part of them maybe have still strong Bulgarian identity. Later, there was a disappointment of the population from the Bulgarian power. And with the combination of the development of the Second World War, a disappointment, a frustration of local population, especially the younger generation, became stronger and stronger, and they were the basic participants in the resistance against the Bulgarian power. The end of World War II leads directly to the communist period of Macedonia's history. Tito, having been a leader of the anti-fascist resistance in occupied Yugoslavia, emerged as the new leader of communist Yugoslavia. The People's Republic of Macedonia was created as one of the six constituent republics of the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia. For the remainder of the communist period, the Macedonian Republic provided the institutions and structures for a Macedonian national identity to be formed and to flourish. The Macedonian language was standardized and taught in schools, and an entire educational apparatus was established to promote the language, culture, and history of the Macedonians as a separate and distinct people. That is, separate from the Bulgarians. This process of Macedonian identity formation happened in a region where, as we noted before, identity had been historically fluid, not just in the pre-modern, pre-national period, but well into the 20th century. Alexei explains this well through the prism of his own family. People really identified in weird ways before nation states. In the Ottoman lands, particularly in the Balkans, people identified religiously. People identified as a Muslim or Orthodox Christian or a Jew or whatever. They didn't really identify as Bulgarian, Macedonian, Albanian. People later on did. And during the wars, particularly 1900 and 1945, in Macedonia itself, a lot of fluidity in terms of identity. So my grandparents on my father's side are from sort of Eastern Macedonia, which borders Bulgaria. At one point, they were all declared as Serbs. At one point, they then became Bulgarians. And then all of a sudden, they became Macedonians, even though they identified as Macedonians the whole way through. And so in my family, people changed their names. I, my last name right now is Demyansky. My grandfather's ID says Demyanov because the OV was more Bulgarian. And when he was born, the Bulgarians were kind of in charge. Before that, someone was Demyanovich because it was the Serbs. So there's a lot of fluidity here, and that kind of plays into some of these issues. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this They wall. made a hole in the Berlin Wall.
It had not seemed possible only months ago. Now anything seemed possible. And the Communist Party was brought down in less than a month. So let's turn now to the post-communist period. Taylor, what happened with the disintegration of the People's Republic of Yugoslavia? The disintegration of Yugoslavia followed closely on the heels of the collapse of communism and the call for free elections across Eastern Europe and the USSR starting in 1989 and ending in 1991. In the same year, Macedonia sought recognition as an independent country and began to gradually seek integration into NATO and the EU. Interestingly, the very first state to recognize Macedonia was neighboring Bulgaria, but Greece blocked Macedonian integration into these institutions until quite recently. So now, as we discussed, the issue for Macedonian EU accession is Bulgaria. But then there is a more fundamental question lurking here in the background. Namely, should Macedonia even join the EU in the first place? I was one of those people that said, okay, if we need to swallow adding North to the front of the name to be able to reap the benefits of European Union membership, we should do that. And in general, sort of sympathy towards the European Union is very high in the country. I mean, consistently over 70% of people are in favor of joining the EU. It's really never been, it's never really taken a hit. What has taken a hit in recent polling is what are the chances that you think that that'll happen in the next couple of years? So that's taken a hit because of the situation with Bulgaria. Like Alexei, all of our guests this semester were pretty pessimistic that this issue will be resolved anytime soon. We can hear in more detail Stefan Dachev's analysis of the difficulties that will keep this stalemate in place. I published a long article in the Bulgarian media in which uh, I wrote that it's quite naive by the both Prime Minister, Boyko Borisov, Bulgarian Prime Minister, and Macedonian Prime Minister, Zoran Zaev, to think that this Bulgarian-Macedonian historical debate will be resolved soon and without some uh, disappointments from the both countries because uh, we have quite stable uh, historical narratives, Bulgarian historical narrative and Macedonian historical narrative are quite strong and they were strongly supported by the Bulgarian historians from the one hand, the majority of them, the mainstream Bulgarian historians and the mainstream Macedonian historians. They were very well uh, situated in the educational systems of both countries and also they are very well received among the Bulgarian and Macedonian uh, public opinion. Public opinion is clearly a huge issue in both Bulgaria and in Macedonia. Dr. Avramov explains the Bulgarian position and how it is actually tied to internal politics. If you look at from a Bulgarian perspective, you know, you're saying, okay, well, we are part of the EU and the EU has rules. And why should you deny the fact that if we have a full right to veto, you know, now the question veto for what? But, you know, immediately that will be linked to Prespa. They will say like, well, look at the Greeks, right? You know, I mean, if they're able to do it, why the double standard against us? You know, if we want to express our national interest uh, the way it is understood in certain quarters, specifically right, right of center, and nationalist parties. And that wins votes uh, uh, currently. Uh, It's not a very popular position to stay against it. 
But Dr. Avramov went on to offer a critique of the Bulgarian approach to this issue and its negative effect on Bulgarian-Macedonian relations. My personal opinion is that Sofia has done tremendous mistake going into this what I call tupik, you know, dead end street, into which you are putting unrealistic expectations and you are using for political terms what Benedict Anderson will say, imagine communities and put them into and use them as a policy instruments, that can never lead you to something really constructive. For the past couple of years, from my perspective, we probably, you know, in Sofia, it's that's we, we probably were managed, you know, to make people in Macedonia hate us more than what 30 years of Tito has done. Why? Because if you antagonize, polarize and push somebody to the wall, what kind of other reactions would you expect? Based on the many discussions we've had with experts and colleagues and the research we've done, we've come to the conclusion that the U.S. and other external policymakers from within or outside the EU should continue to foster dialogue between Bulgaria and Macedonia, and if possible, act as mediators in this dispute. But as far as resolving this issue, the future is uncertain. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. Se ti sei, ma che